Coming up on Harvard Chan This Week in Health, the future of the Affordable Care Act. The ACA has been through, by my count, uh, six near-death experiences <laughs> since its creation. Will President-elect Donald Trump and a Republican Congress follow through on their pledge to repeal and replace Obamacare? And what will be the impact if the law is dismantled? There was a report out a couple of weeks ago from the uh, White House Council of Economic Advisors. They estimated that 24,000 more Americans might die each year if there's a repeal that leads to loss of coverage for, for you know 20 million or more Americans. On this week's episode, we sit down with two experts to discuss how a Trump administration could reshape health care in America. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. It's Thursday, January 12th, 2017. I'm Noah Levitt. And I'm Amy Montemiro. In just a little over a week, Donald Trump will be inaugurated as the 45th president of the United States. And a major campaign pledge was to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act, which has helped expand health insurance to more than 20 million Americans. Republicans now control the House and the Senate and have made repealing Obamacare a top priority. In fact, earlier this week, President-elect Trump demanded a repeal vote by next week. But many questions remain. Will Republicans be able to follow through on their plan to dismantle the ACA? What will it be replaced with? And how will this affect the millions of Americans who rely on the Affordable Care Act for insurance? We pose those questions to two experts on health care and the ACA. John McDonough, I'm a professor of practice in the Department of Health Policy and Management. I'm Ben Summers, associate professor of health policy and economics. Both have studied the Affordable Care Act extensively. John McDonough worked in the Senate on the law's development and passage, and Ben Summers has studied how the ACA has affected the health of Americans and how they use the health care system. We brought them into our studio for a wide-ranging discussion about the Affordable Care Act and the future of health care policy in America. And we're going to play that conversation now for you in its entirety. And just a quick note before we begin. If you have questions about the ACA, we're giving you the chance to ask them directly to John and Ben on Wednesday, January 18th. They'll be taking your questions on our Facebook page beginning at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time. Just go to facebook.com slash Harvard Public Health to join the discussion. Now here's our interview. John, let's start with you. Just as some background, and when we talk about opposition to the Affordable Care Act, uh, what, I guess generally, what are opponents of the ACA focusing on? What what parts of the law um, are they most against? So I think you could put it into two main categories. First, uh, there are elements of the law that are deeply offensive to Republicans, um, and some are historic. So the law is fully self-financed. It is paid for. It actually lowers the deficit rather than increasing the deficit, all things considered. And to do that, there are a number of highly significant tax increases in it, including new Medicare payroll taxes on high-income families on both earned and unearned income. That's a big one. There's new taxes on medical device makers, drug companies, pharmaceutical companies. So that's one category. Another source of opposition is that it's just a significant increase in the power of the federal government over the health care marketplace. And some people think that's good. Some people think that's not good. Republicans tend to think that's not good. Uh, there are some pieces that they've become very strident against, like the individual mandate, that are quite ironic because the mandate was really introduced by conservatives and Republicans into health policy discourse in the late 1980s. And Republicans really championed the individual mandate until 2009 when Barack Obama embraced it and then they all jumped off the other side of the boat. 
vote. So that's one source. The other main source of opposition to the law is just, I think, political, in that Republicans really believed that opposition to Obamacare was a terrific rallying point for conservatives and Republicans. Everybody could come together on, we hate this law. They never had to come up with what we would really replace it with. And so there's both substantive policy disagreements and there are political disagreements that I think both together are quite combustible in terms of motivating this rather extraordinary opposition. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to get into that a little bit later, kind of this, the the replace part of it. But I guess kind of setting the stage, where do, I mean, you mentioned this a second ago that it's almost changing minute by minute, so I don't know who wants to take this, but where do efforts to repeal the ACA kind of stand right now? So there is a process going on right now in Congress that is attempting to repeal not the entire law because they really can't do that. To repeal the entire law, you'd need 60 votes in the U.S. Senate. Republicans have 52, and it is highly unlikely they could attract eight Democratic votes to repeal the entire law. And the truth is there's a lot of the law that Republicans actually like that they wouldn't want to repeal. So instead, what they are attempting to do is use an accelerated process called budget reconciliation by which the Senate can pass a law with only 51 votes, although it has to be only budget-related, so it limits what could go into it. But so Republicans want to use budget reconciliation to dismantle the financing of the law and some of the other key components, such as the individual mandate. And so that is their strategy. But they call their strategy repeal and delay because they don't have a replacement plan ready. So they're saying, let us repeal the law now, and then we will come up with a replacement plan sometime over the next year, two years. They're talking about a delay as long as four years. So that's really the source of a lot of concern, including among moderate Republicans, is if we're going to repeal this law, we should have a replace ready at the same time. And so that's the disagreement. The difficulty for Republicans is that if they tried to repeal and replace, they could not do that through reconciliation. They would have to go through regular order, and they couldn't get 60 votes in the Senate for a repeal and a replace of the sort that would appeal to Republicans. So for people at home who might be kind of concerned about the impact on their insurance, like this is not a thing where the ACA is disappearing overnight. It would be a long-term thing, and and I guess you're saying it's more... A total repeal is unlikely, but maybe more of a piecemeal dismantling. Is that accurate? The piecemeal dismantling is is pretty significant when you think about coverage for people. So the budget-related items they can pull away through this reconciliation process are funding for Medicaid expansion, which is probably a, about $12 million of the newly insured under the ACA, um, and the tax credits that help people buy uh, insurance on the health insurance marketplaces, and that's the bulk of the remaining uh, $20 million that have gained coverage. So if you take away those two pieces of the law, you're left with what is largely a, a, a kind of a, a shell of a law with a whole bunch of regulations in place, but no funding that actually makes coverage affordable for people. And so, in fact, it, there, there are some projections out there now that if this partial repeal goes through with reconciliation, it's not only going to take away coverage from roughly 20 million people who have gained uh, insurance through Medicaid or the marketplaces, it might actually exceed that by up to 9 or 10 million more. And the reason for that is because if you don't repeal the whole ACA, there are a bunch of features of the law that still take hold, that still are, are uh, binding requirements on insurance companies. So, for instance, the requirement that they cover, um, uh, that they take all comers for insurance 
insurance without uh, uh, paying attention to pre-existing conditions. They can't charge different prices for people based on their health status. And so these requirements, which are part of kind of a system of trying to make insurance affordable across the board, if you've taken away the tax credits and you've taken away the individual mandate, now insurance is not really affordable for many people. And so the only people signing up now on these marketplaces will be those who have higher health care costs for the most part. And so we've seen concerns about this notion of adverse selection, only sicker people signing up. That will go out of control under this partial reconciliation plan. And because of that, some, some scholars at the Urban Institute have predicted you not, not only lose the 20 million who gain coverage, you lose another 9 or 10 million of coverage because the individual insurance market essentially unravels. So. The notion of, of delay and repl- of repeal and delay uh, is is really problematic for anyone who gets their insurance through an insurance company directly, uh, either on or off the the health insurance marketplaces, because the whole market essentially will become destabilized when you're left with the shell of the regulations on the insurance companies, but none of the funding that made it feasible. So, in in a sense, it doesn't just affect the people who have bought insurance through the marketplaces. Like this would this could have effects for anyone who has insurance. Uh, well, particularly anyone who has insurance, they don't get through work. Um, and, and more broadly, we've also seen as part of this conversation, but potentially a separate uh, piece of legislation, a proposal for major reforms in how Medicaid is funded to the states, um, where the federal government would essentially cap its contributions to states. And if that happens, then it's not only people who are getting Medicaid through the ACA expansion, but anyone. Who who's on Medicaid, which is up to about 70 million Americans, who would see potential risks to their coverage, loss of benefits, lower payments to providers, or even loss of eligibility. And so there's a whole lot on the table right now. And uh, without being alarmist, essentially anyone who doesn't get their insurance through work or Medicare has a whole lot to to lose in this debate if if there aren't significant um, changes in the the direction that the Republican Congress is talking about. And just as a quick follow-up to that, and I mean, even if I, you know, let's say I do get my insurance through work, are there are there still provisions of the ACA that could affect me, like having my children covered up to the age of 26? So how, how could other people who even get insurance through an employer still be affected by this kind of repeal and delay tactic? Well, the ACA has had a lot of effects across the board on insurance, and some of the key ones include um, young adults being able to stay on their parents' plan through age 26, um, the creation of essential health benefits, which essentially standardize the kinds of services that have to be covered, things that m- most people assume insurance companies would cover, like the prescription drugs and mental health and emergency care. Um, and then the, the other set of features relates most specifically to people who get their insurance directly from an insurance company, not through work. But um, as John was saying, some of these features would probably remain in place because, A, the Republicans often support some of these pieces of it, and B, they don't have the votes anyway. So anything that doesn't have that funding linked to the federal budget uh, can't be repealed through reconciliation. So some of those features will continue. I'd be interested in John's take on this. My sense is that for people with employer coverage, there might be uh, some uncertainty related to this partial repeal, but less direct impact. Well, Certainly not as much, and certainly there would be some, in particular because the ACA has some requirements in terms of benefits that have to be covered that do, in fact, address people who are insured through their employers, Uh, things like the essential health benefits, uh, things like women's preventive health care benefits. So, for example, and most women don't understand this, but post-ACA, they, when they uh, have a baby and they need breast pumping equipment, they now get that through their insurance for free 
for no charge to them. Uh, that's because of the ACA. There are a host of other clinical preventive services like mammograms, prostrate exams, wellness visits, uh, those kinds of things that have to be covered under insurance and cannot be subject to any copays or any deductibles or any cost sharing at all. And those are very much targeted by uh, the Republican leaders for elimination if they can uh, do it. Well, I think there's also a, a wrinkle here in thinking about um, the ACA's future. We've been focusing so far on legislation, con what, what does Congress do? Uh, but there's a huge part of this that relates to what does the new administration do? Because the Department of Health and Human Services is the agency that's tasked with uh, implementing the ACA. And so for some of the features John talked about, it's not clear to me that Congress would have the votes to overturn. But if HHS significantly alters the regulations governing how that's implemented, for instance, women could lose access to contraception the way that it's guaranteed right now under the Obama administration and the ACA. And there are other features that could similarly be taken down through um, regulation from the Trump administration, even if Congress doesn't act. That's right. Kind of jumping off from that, I wanted to ask about maybe attempts to uh, reduce the impact of what might be happening at the congressional level or at the administration level. Like, is there any action states could take, for example, to maybe, you know, help help residents kind of within their own state um, to kind of alleviate some of the impact of what's going on? So there's, there's a vigorous effort going on, particularly as it relates to Medicaid, which is a federal state program, and, and Ben can talk about this better than me, but um, the, the financial stakes for state governments in terms of the kinds of changes that are being discussed for fundamental financing changes to Medicaid would have significant negative impacts on state budgets. So for example, the governors through the National Governor Association, perhaps even more importantly, the Republican governors through the Republican National Governors Association are focused on this like a laser beam at this point and are deeply concerned that Republican members of Congress are gonna try and uh, lower federal spending by shifting costs onto states in a very negative way. So there's a lot of impact. There's a lot of things that are going on. There are broad national coalitions that are coming together right now to try and mobilize uh, uh, people to tell their stories and share their stories. So this is a very active and engaged time right now politically. And just kind of as a follow-up to that, if, this is maybe just kind of a more general question, but I mean, is it do you, is this dangerous at all? Kind of the politicization of something like healthcare. I mean, how dangerous is this, and how concerned? I guess how concerned are you about kind of the future of healthcare in the U.S. going forward? I think if we look at what's happened since the Affordable Care Act was passed, uh, it's a pretty startling example of what happens when the policy process breaks down, largely for political reasons. Most complex pieces of legislation get passed, and then there's an ongoing assessment as to how it's, how it's doing, what's working, what isn't, what should be revised. There's some areas of, of, of consensus that, uh, that people would like to see improved in the, in the ACA, and then there are other areas where there's sharp partisan divide. But there's been essentially no constructive revision or revisiting of the, the ACA since the debate has almost exclusively been repeal or not repeal. And and uh, so to some extent, the, the supporters of repeal have been, you know, sounding this alarm or this drumbeat for six years. And now that they have full control of, of the White House and, and Congress, uh, they've essentially backed themselves into a corner that they have to do something that will sound like repeal, even as the implications of it become uh, more obviously damaging, particularly, you know, when, when one of the main objections has been that the marketplaces have not been as robust with as good competition as, as many people would like to see, um, the repeal and delay plan is, is essentially a 
disaster uh, for these marketplaces because with the prospect of the law going away in, in several years, uh, most insurers would have little reason to, to remain in the market. And so you actually see a proposal that is going to make worse one of the main critiques of the ACA, and that's because essentially uh, they, there is no other way to achieve uh, a, what looks like a repeal than through this reconciliation process that, that leaves such a shell-fragmented um, uh, marketplace intact. In so I, I think uh, this, is, this is concerning because the policy process really has broken down, that there hasn't been any um, uh, attempt to, to constructively address what is working and what isn't working in the law. That's that's been my sense. I, I think there's a deeper, even more important part, and Ben did the groundbreaking research on this in terms of showing the number of lives that were saved from the implementation of Massachusetts health reform that has now been extrapolated on the national level. And now some people are taking your data and saying, here are the number of lives that would be lost if we had 30 million people lose health insurance coverage. Could you could you talk about that, Ben? Yeah, so this is based on some work that we did uh, looking at the Massachusetts health reform in 2006, which was in many ways the model for the, the national reform under the Affordable Care Act. And we followed what uh, happened to survival rates uh, over four years after the implementation of the law and comparing Massachusetts to similar areas around the country that didn't have uh, this reform. And we found striking reductions in mortality, especially for causes of death that are potentially treatable with health care, like infections heart disease, cancer. And so there was a report out a couple of weeks ago from the uh, White House Council of Economic Advisors where using our work and some of the estimates on a potential repeal, they estimated that 24,000 more Americans might die each year if there's a repeal that leads to loss of coverage for, for you know 20 million or more Americans. So this is life or death. Um, and, and taking away coverage from people and, and not having any alternative way for them to afford their, their health care is uh, should be deeply concerning to anybody who, who worries about the well-being of other people in the country, and uh, this is just, a, 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 again, I, I would say um, an area where the, the public health implications have, have been um, potentially put at risk because of a, a very uh, politicized process of discussion about this law. And, and not just death, but also people with untreated illnesses and injuries and the impact in terms of their uh, life enhancement, in terms of their ability to work, in terms of a whole set of things that most of us with good insurance benefits take for granted. I think if we look at the, the debate over the ACA, what we've kind of lost track of, it, it, there's often a kind of a, a he said, she said sort of discussion about, well, you know, there's some people like it, some people that hate it. The research evidence on the ACA is much less equivocal. Um, it, it demonstrates that the number of uninsured Americans has dropped to the lowest rate in, in recorded history, the biggest gain in coverage since the creation of Medicare and Medicaid 50 years ago. S numerous studies show increased access to care, more people getting primary care, more people able to afford prescription medications, um, some reduction in reliance on the emergency department, and people also describing that they're feeling better, that their health their health status has improved, they're getting chronic care for conditions like diabetes and heart disease. So all of the things we'd like to see health insurance doing, we're seeing happening. Uh, that doesn't mean the law is perfect, but it means the changes since the passage of law have been, uh, on the aggregate, uh, you know, overall um, quite positive, and that's really what's at stake here. And I know one of your colleagues, Kate Baker, recently wrote a piece, I think it was in Health Affairs, talking about this need for um, evidence, not anecdotes, when talking about the Affordable Care Act. And so kind of jumping off of that, I guess a two-part question. Is there any case that can be made now to kind of try to defend uh, or keep the law intact? And then do you think that case can be made? Like, is there any hope of saving the ACA at this point? I'd say yes, there is. I think a lot of people are wringing their hands. You know, the, the ACA has been through, by my count, uh, six near-death experiences. 
<laughs> since its creation, including, you remember the Scott Brown election in January 2010, the website catastrophe, two Supreme Court cases. I mean, it has been literally the perils of Pauline in terms of trying to survive, and it has come through. But I already see, you know, in this round right now, so many commentators saying, well, ACA is dead and done with you know, stick a fork in it, what's next? And I just don't accept that. And I think that there's so many people right now, in particular right now, there are just so many hundreds of thousands of stories of people whose lives have been helped in such profound ways because they had access to medical care that I, I just would not, I wouldn't bet money to say it's going to survive and I wouldn't bet money to say it's going down. What are each of your kind of predictions about the future of the ACA? I mean, so you're, I mean, you're kind of in the camp of Let's not write it off yet. Ben, where do you come down? Do you think there's some hope to, to preserve the law? I, I think, like many of us, I probably have uh, become a whole lot more cautious about making political predictions than, <laughs> than I was two months ago. Um, we've seen already, again, as John mentioned, at the governor's level, pretty clear uh, voicing of concerns from Republicans who lead states with large coverage expansions under the ACA. We can't scrap this entirely. Uh, we've heard it in, from Arizona. Uh, pretty much all along, Governor John Kasich in Ohio has has made a, a very eloquent case for uh, not only the policy but the ethical uh, argument for expanding Medicaid to uninsured people in his state, and so that's that's really where I think the the debate's going to come down to: Are there uh, a handful of Republicans who say, "While I may not love everything about this law, I, I'm not comfortable uh, pushing 20 million people uh, into the ranks of the uninsured, and we, and we need to come up with a better solution." So uh, I, I I'm not going to offer a prediction. I don't know. I think there's enough uncertainty here that um, that we need to be having a a, a vigorous public discussion about what the implications of the, the law have been, what getting rid of it would mean for people, um, and, and that is probably the best thing that we can do in the research community to try to inform that discussion is just to lay out as clearly as we can what we know that has uh, has happened with the law and what taking uh, coverage away from people would mean. Right. And, and fundamentally, with the repeal and delay, there's absolutely no question that the Republican majorities could succeed in repealing and delaying. It is absolutely unclear that this Congress would ever be able to come together and agree on a replacement plan because that would require at least 60 votes in the Senate. And there's just no certainty. And so we could see the scenario where there's a repeal and a delay to a date certain, and then there's no execution of a plan to replace. Is there anything that could have been done earlier on in the like the year or two after the ACA was passed to maybe address some of the concerns that both Republicans and Democrats had? Like, could this have been headed off at any point, or is this kind of doomed from the start? Well, maybe let me... Um add one quick wrinkle to the question and then let John answer the full of what you're asking there. The first is that there actually has been a fair bit of ongoing innovation under the ACA, but it hasn't been legislative. It has not ha come from Congress. Uh, it's come from a combination of what the administration uh, under President Obama has been able to do and the states. We've seen some innovative approaches in state Medicaid expansion as uh, pr primarily Republican governors have proposed alternative expansion models to uh, federal government, and the Obama administration has negotiated those proposals and in some cases said yes. Some cases said no, and some cases said, yeah, if we if you tweak this somewhat. And so we've seen uh, uh, some innovation like Arkansas using private insurance to cover low-income adults, Michigan using health, uh, incentives for uh, preventive care and other kinds of healthy behaviors, um, Indiana using health savings accounts. So there has been some experimentation going on, but, uh, but Congress really has played no role in it because of this partisan divide. The states have been much more uh, engaged in this, and Medicaid expansion has, despite the rhetoric, become a bipartisan enterprise. Uh, and so 
I think there is some hope there that we see some some real discussion about ways to, to do coverage expansion in meaningful and uh, creative ways. Uh, but the larger question of what could have been done differently earlier on, I'll, I'll pass to my colleague here. Well, I, there's a reasonable question about the goodwill on either side, and each side accuses the other of bad faith and bad will. But um, the the the, the uh, naming of the Affordable Care Act as Obamacare was done by the opponents as a way to try to pin it to say that you judge this law based upon whether you like or dislike President Obama. And that set a political tone to it right from the start. Um, I worked in the Senate on the writing and passage of the law until 2010, around when it passed, and there was never any sense that this high level of politicization would continue into the implementation period, and it did continue, and it, it arguably even accelerated. Um, and so um, I think it's, 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 if it were just the policy disagreements, I think there would have been a possibility, but throwing into the pool all of the political elements of people seeing advantage from the positions they were taking made it pretty darn impossible in the era of Obama. That was our conversation with John McDonough and Ben Summers on the future of the Affordable Care Act. And if you have questions you'd like to ask John and Ben, we hope you'll join us for our Facebook Live Q&A with these two experts. Just visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Harvard Public Health, on Wednesday, January 18th at 1130 a.m. Eastern Time to ask your question. John and Ben will be answering them for about a half hour. We'll have a link to our Facebook page on our website, hsbh.me slash thisweekinhealth. And that's all for this week's episode. A reminder that you can always find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher.